All right, good morning, and nice to see all of you here bright and early, and hope you've um, enjoyed these uh, elder testimonies during this 9.30 hour. This is the sixth one, and um, before I share uh, my testimony, why don't, why don't I start with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, that we can gather and God, this morning we also thank you for um, the opportunity to hear of your grace, um, so abundant, um, so amazing. And um, I look forward to um, just sharing my testimony, and may you be glorified in, in all of that. Um, and God, we just, um, just want to thank you for this day that we can corporately gather and worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, um, so I have a few slides, maybe the next slide. Yeah, so um, like I said, this is the sixth of eight uh, elder testimonies, and I've been um, just blessed to serve with the fellow brothers here. So this is um, a picture, I think, from last year of an um, elder luncheon we had, I think, all the elders at that time, and just minus um, Robin, was able to be in this picture. So um, I came to this church pretty early on. Uh, I was had to look back at my emails as to when I came. <laughs> uh, it turns out that uh, GBF, at that time GBF, um, was started in, I think, May or June of 2006. And I came to a first GBF function in the summer of 2007. Actually, my daughter invited me to a um, summer poolside party and study at Cliff's house back then. And um, one of the early meetings I had was kind of a surprising meeting. Um, March of that year, I went to the Shepherds Conference in, um, in the LA area and wanted to save a little bit of money, so. I started, I think, at 3 in the morning to drive down to Sun Valley, and I parked into the uh, Grace Community Church parking lot. So I parked right there, and that same moment, Cliff's car was parked right next to me. So we happened to see each other in March of 2008 at the Shepherds Conference. Um, began regularly attending uh, this church in 2008, and became a member in 2009. And so, um, as Pastor Derek mentioned at his uh, testimony, um, Scripture says we ought to share our testimony to proclaim His saving grace to us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says that uh, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is what I want to do today. And as I thought about sharing my testimony, one of my favorite Bible verses came to mind. So next slide. So for those who know me a bit, uh, or has received some of my emails, that gives you a clue as my, one of my favorite Bible verses. So it's 1 Peter 3.15. So my email is very close to that. <laughs> um, 
And this verse has impacted me tremendously, and I just want to go through a bit of it uh, with you. It's uh, sometimes known as the apologetics verse. I think Pastor Cliff preached on this as he um, um, introduced his book, uh, Biblical Apologetics, uh, I think four years ago. So here in this verse, um, what jumps out is to make a defense, or in some translations, to give an answer. And the Apostle Peter uses this word in an informal sense, meaning that we ought to always be ready to give an answer. It could be from anyone. Um, the main verb here is to be set apart. So as we prepare to give an answer, to make a defense, we ought to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Um, and when Peter wrote this, he wrote it in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake. So this is very broad of a command that we ought to do this. We need to have the right heart in order to um, talk to another sinner. And um, we need to um, have humility. Um, and toward the end of this verse is with gentleness and reverence, gentleness to the hearer and reverence, reverence to God. So that's how the approach is. And so this morning, I'm really privileged to give you an answer for the hope, the hope of eternal life that is in me, all right? Um, first, I want to show a few slides to uh, get you a little bit familiar with myself. So next slide. So here, I'm born in, born in Hong Kong. I'm the second oldest of four boys. And I've been married to my wife, Alice, for 36 years. Um, yeah, it's been a blessing. And show some pictures of me and her. We love to travel. And um, we've been married um, 36 years. Can't believe it. Seems like time just flies. Um, next slide. So um, we have three children. They're grown. This is a picture from earlier this year. Um, they all graduated from college. They, are, um, they have jobs. They're uh, working in their careers. So um, as I like to remember, um, I am tuition-free. All right. So, yeah, so um, those are my three children. Next slide. And last year, um, we, had, we were very blessed. My oldest daughter... Um, she and her, my son-in-law, they um, had a son. So this is our first grandchild. So the picture on the left is a picture of uh, four generations. So that's my mother, myself, my daughter, and then my grandson. In the middle is uh, my son-in-law. And the one on the right, he's already running around. Uh, he's only a... I think like 13 or 14 months old, but he's a, a big kid that just is active, endless amount of energy. <laughs> so, so next slide. So um, that's all the pictures. I didn't want to show too many. <laughs> uh, so first, just growing up in my childhood, I was, like I said, I was born and raised in Hong Kong in the uh, crowded city of Kowloon. Um, at that time, I was the younger of two boys and um, didn't remember much of Hong Kong. My father passed away when I was six months old. 
Um, so I was mainly raised by my mom, and we lived in a really tiny apartment. Um, I was a bit rambunctious, had a few accidents, got a scar from it. Um, I remember I went to a private school. Somehow that I'll have very few memories of, the, of just Hong Kong in general. Um, I remember wearing a school uniform, and the one thing I remember there was it was school policy that all the grades of all the students would be posted publicly. So it's all on all these, you know, um, just public places. And uh, it's kind of frightening when they give out the grades and, like, uh, everybody's going to see what you have and so forth. Um, and I distinctly remember I was fourth in my class. And you would think my mom would be happy with number four in the class, right? But she wasn't because only the top three get tuition reimbursements. <laughs> so I just missed it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so they only, only the top three get scholarships. So it's, um, that was kind of interesting there. Um, and because I was raised by my single mom, I was kind of raised by committee. Um, a little background on my mom. Um, she also was raised by her mother at an early age. Um, um, my, my grandmother um, at that time was living in a small town called Toisan in China, southern China. And back in that generation, being a widow, she was, um, there was a stigma to it. And she was a bit ridiculed by it. And, um, and so she endured that for whatever reason. Um, my grandmother and some relatives had an opportunity to immigrate from China to Hong Kong. And sometimes those opportunities are rare. So um, she did that. And when she did that, um, she left my mom back in Toisan at age 12 to be able to immigrate to Hong Kong because the opportunity was there. And back in that time, um, the families, multiple generational families, would live in one tall building. And so it created a lot of uh, festive um, activities and environment. Um, it also had a lot of support from, from family members being um, in a multiple-story uh, building that had um, could be your children and their kids and so forth, all in one place. It's still, in a sense, it could be a very close-knit and supportive environment. Um, and actually, my, um, my mom and, um, took me and my brother back there about five years ago to kind of get to see what it looked like. And much of Toisan has been um, uh, modernized, so... But there were still a few blocks of the old village that were there, and um, some people actually recognized my mom, even though it's been 40 to 50 years. Um, so it was kind of interesting to go to see her place, and um, it's a humble beginnings, kind of a rundown um, shack that's been uh, abandoned and still there. Um, and I got to see where my mom, as a baby girl was studying in a, in a little desk that's still there. So um, it was kind of, um, it brought back some, some memories there for her. 
Um, so in that environment and just making do, my, my mother, parenting-wise, was influenced very much by the relatives and by all they knew. And she's left alone at age 12, basically, to live with her um, cousins and maybe some aunts and uncles. So during that time, um, we, we were, I grew up on a bit of uh, Buddhism, a bit of um, kind of ancestral worship, um, some, I think, superstition, some passed down traditions that we don't even know how, <laughs> where they come about, or they don't even know where it comes about. And um, some of the traditions are just um, kind of unexplainable. It's, they go through this book, like at the beginning after each Chinese New Year, they would go through this book, and based on whoever wrote this book, there are certain days that you're not supposed to wash your hair. There are certain days that are better for weddings and stuff like that. And it's a big, thick book that comes out every year. So it's, uh, it's very odd. And, um, and these kind of traditions um, just were passed on, really no questions asked. And um, so with that, I just kind of was an obedient child. And um, so I think that happens a lot where kids in that generation were just very obedient, just out of necessity, out of respect to the elders, okay, older people. Um, when I was eight, uh, I moved to America. That was, this was time where it was uh, so-called our ticket to immigrate. And my grandmother, who, is, who immigrated um, years ago, six years before this, um, settled in Long Island, New York. Um, and her older sister in San Francisco, somehow, um, I think um, they've been in America a long time, and they were able to get a number of us to immigrate from Hong Kong to um, America. And so with that opportunity, I think uh, we jumped on that, and uh, a number of us were able to immigrate to the U.S., so, um, so I boarded a Pan Am plane, if you remember Pan Am, um, and off we go to Long Island, and what a change. It was like America was, it wasn't crowded. It was like, that was amazing. Um, and if you know Long Island, it's a, um, it's a very secluded area, um, maybe 30, 40 miles east of New York City. So it's, um, it's a nice, quiet town, and I remember it was a very simple town. And, um, and so we had humble beginnings, but we were very happy. I remember playing with my G.I. Joes. Remember that? Um, I played Little League. That was kind of fun. First time play Little League. Um, and one thing related to baseball, I was there in the fall of 68, and we were there a couple years, and I got to witness the, the miracle and just the, the energy and the excitement of the amazing Mets of 69. I don't know if you remember that, but that's the year that the, the Mets won the World Series coming from so far back in the standings. So that, I was there for that, and so I remember some good times there and fun times. Um, 
one person I really want to, to um, give a shout out to is this lady named Elaine. Um, she's a wonderful young lady who providentially worked at my grandparents' laundromat. They immigrated to um, Long Island and they had a laundromat business in a very small town called, in, called Belmore. And she was, uh, I think at her high school age, she was um, working for my grandparents. And they became friends and um, Elaine's parents, um, friends. And, and the reason why I want to really um, remember her is that here I am, eight years old, don't know hardly any English, and she took the time to help me integrate into the American culture. And I think she's maybe 15 years older than me. And this is what she would do. She would, well, she's about, at that time, maybe 20, um, 22. She would learn what I learned in school, in grade school. She would take the time to relearn it teach my grandfather, who then could teach it back to me in Chinese, <laughs> all the subjects. And she would do that, and just out of the warmness of her heart, she would do that. And, and that's how the knowledge was transferred, and that's how I passed through school. <laughs> so I'm indebted to her. Um, and, uh, and then at age 10, a couple years later, my mom remarried and we moved to the Bay Area. And back in that day, there's a lot of fruit orchards, very few cars. Highway 101 was like a dirt road. So, um, yeah, it was not as populated as today for sure. Now, one thing that happened during this time is um, my core values begin to form. And... With that, um, not only what I learned from my mom and through the relatives there, but through my stepfather, um, he's one that I would say ruled, ruled with a very strong hand. Um, don't know if maybe some of you from the Cantonese uh, upbringing could relate to that. He meant well. Uh, he had my best interests, but he was very firm and he didn't show much expression. So um, he, I was taught many things, and partly because of the strong hand, I took it all in without really questioning anything. Um, there was no talking back. There's no, no attitude was tolerated, okay? There's nothing disrespectful. That's just the way it is, okay? So as we try to teach our children it's a very different environment to try to stress that. Um, so little by little, my uh, core values were formed, and I just want to highlight these are four core values that formed me from roughly age 10 through um, probably college. So first is respect your family elders. This is a must meaning that we ought to respect our immediate family, relatives, and also friends of relatives that are either older than you or have a higher generational rank than you, okay? So sometimes um, I could have an uncle that's younger than me, 
in age, but I would still have to show the proper respect of an uncle, to him as an uncle. So, um, and part of this respect is to address them by their proper title at family functions, right? So, in the Chinese language, this is really hard <laughs> um, because the word for uncle is different depending on if he's on your father's side or your mother's side, if he's older or younger than you. And then you also need to remember his order of birth within his siblings. Count, like in the uncle's case, counting males only, right? So, and on top of that, the title might be different depending on the dialect that's spoken in the region of China that their family is from. So in one title, many things can be conveyed, but yet to know how to say the right one. <laughs> that's the hard part. So, uh, respecting your family elders. Number two is uh, caring for the family. Um, the Chinese culture is very family-oriented. It's very important. Um, I mentioned about living close together and so forth. Um, and whatever um, hardship, whatever situations, we try to pull together as a family. That, that's, that's really important. Um, and we would practically do anything for our family to get them through whatever times. Uh, number three is uh, obedience. And this is something that's beyond the respect that I mentioned earlier. Um, this is obedience and respectful, and uh, we are taught this at an early age where we ought to be obedient and respectful to uh, figures of authority, like police officers, firemen, the president, and so forth. Uh, respectful to uh, teachers, uh, and especially our parents. And not as a parent, this obedience extended to being in public. Okay. So like when we're at a restaurant, it is really bad if the kids act up. That shows um, a sign of disrespect. It shows that kind of infers that the parents have not taught their kids well and that they're losing face in public because the kids are not behaving. So that's that part of obedience uh, as well. And another thing that's kind of, um, kind of translates to is your performance in school. Um, inevitably, when there's social functions, People, family, relatives talk about grades. How's your kid doing? How's your kid doing? And they like to show off their kids, right? So, um, so if you receive mediocre grades, that in part reflects poorly on the parents because this meant they did not stay on top of their children's activities, studies. So all this obedience carries a lot with it. Um, and the fourth Final core value is uh, work hard. Um, I think coming from a humble means, um, um, being, being um, good stewards, being frugal at times was necessary. And I was always taught to work hard to obtain financial security. I saw working hard displayed in my grandparents at their laundromat. Um, they worked day and night, long hours, and. Um, doing hard work and no complaining. They just kept working um, just day, every day. And they did their work with excellence. Their customers really appreciated them. 
my mom, when she immigrated uh, from Hong Kong and didn't know any English, she's in this town in um, Long Island. So what she would do is um, she would take a train or something to Chinatown and pick up um, sewing, sewing garments for like a dollar a garment or something. I don't know, really low price, but she would go there, get a bag of garment and sew it and deliver the goods uh, after a certain amount of time. She did what she could to, supply, to uh, provide for her sons. So this model has always been in, in, um, in my life. And I think this is probably typical of a number of Chinese homes. Um, I mentioned that my mom remarried, and my stepfather, he really emphasized best effort and studies. I mean, it was so much pounded on us. Um, and at times, it really created a heavy pressure on the children. Um, some can take it well, and some cannot. So it's, uh, and the, the expectations are really extremely high. So um, I remember when I get a test score, I was not judged by how many points I received. I was judged by how many points I missed, right? So 95 out of 100, you might think it's good, but is it good enough? So this was tough to take at times, but um, this is the kind of high, high expectations that, um, that my dad had. But even through the tough times, I just kept pressing on and just, um, uh, just continued to study. So four core values, respecting my family elders, caring for the family, obedience, and hard work. And although... From a secular sense, all this could be quite good. You may notice that there's no spiritual aspect to this. There's no God in this, uppercase G or lowercase G right now. Um, so uh, being an obedient son, I pursued st success by hitting the books, and I did it with fervor and, and determination. Um, bear with me as I speak a bit of foolishness about my schooling, and hopefully this will reiterate a point later, but um, this foolishness that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. So um, I breezed through elementary school and middle school. My stepdad encouraged me to finish high school in three years, and I did that. Um, I was e even able to take some college classes in my third year in high school. Um, fortunately, college came easy, and by age 20, I got my bachelor's of science in engineering and began my career as an engineer. I kept going while working full-time. I took two graduate courses every quarter in pursuing a master's degree. So nonstop, after bachelor's degree, start master's degree. Um, and at that time is when I met my future wife, Alice. So here I am working full-time. My dad was actually off to doing his PhD in Illinois, left my mom while I was at home, so-called keeping the house in order. How can I at age 21, right? <laughs> so just, just kind of watching out for my mom. So working full-time, 
you know, watching the home a bit, um, grad school, and then I still had time to date Alice. And she wonders, like, how did you find the time to date her? So, um, so it was a wonderful time, and I'm blessed that I didn't have to study too much. So, so. so fast forward two years, I finished my master's degree, I got married, and like clockwork, with no time wasted, the next month we went to Illinois for my PhD. So just one right after the other, it's like a whirlwind. But the reason why I share with you all this foolishness is because with all this education, with all this knowledge, bit by bit, I was being puffed up. I was being hardened by the world and the wisdom of the world, so to speak. My heart was hardened all the more, and that's why I share with you this foolishness. So with all that education, all that knowledge, I felt like I knew so much even though I knew so little. Um, I figured I could, what I don't know, I can research it. I can rely on science and formulas. I can dig through academic uh, publications, listen to experts in the field. Human wisdom can explain practically anything. And that's where I became confident and very puffed up. And so with all this worldly knowledge and being bombarded with secular worldviews, the concept of God rarely crossed my mind. Um, I did not need religion. I did not need a God. I kept living by my core values. And it is ironic and sad that I knew so much, even though I, I, I knew so little, even though I thought I knew so much. And more than sad, I was on a broad road going toward the wide gate that leads to destruction. And I didn't even know it. And to make matters kind of worse in that sense, I was very turned off by religion. And because during, the t during my teenage years, um, there was a lot of chaos in the world, um, especially the turbulent Middle East. Um, I couldn't understand why there was so much war and violence in that region. Um, and whenever religion did get my attention, it was with these horrific events. Um, I don't know if much of, many of you remember, there was something called a gas shortage, a gas crisis, where um, depending on if the last number of your license plate is even or odd is when you can get gas that day. This is in the 70s. So it made a lot of Americans mad, and you had to wait long lines to get gas, and it got so ridiculous meaning hours in line, that some people actually were, um, took ads out that you can hire me to get in line to get gas for you. That's how bad it was. Okay. So this is just, just terrible. And um, this made a lot of Americans mad. And, and some view this as a, um, just a, a religious war. Um, there was also an Iran hostage crisis. 52 Americans and diplomats, American diplomats and citizens were held hostage for over 400 days. Um, the U.S. Embassy was in Tehran was taken over. And this high tension, this time of high tension, really gripped the nation. And right after that is Soviet Union invading Afghanistan. And 
just a couple of notes there. Um, because of that invasion, the United States withdrew from the 1980 Olympics because that was going to be held in Moscow. And Soviet Union and their allies retaliated by boycotting the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. So all this time, there was just so much tension, so much turmoil from that. And, and in 1980, um, I remember this very vividly because um, my employer would say, well, if you're at, of this certain age, you need to register for the selective service. That's a draft to go into service. Um, I was a bit scared at the prospect of being, possibly being in the armed for forces. So um, I could go on and on about these horrific events, Jonestown and many others, but anyway, all this just made me just wonder why is there religion at all? Okay, this is this makes it hard. And so I hear all this tragedy, violence, you hear chants of death to America, you hear that, and it made my heart very hardened towards religion, towards the existence of God, and it's truly a miracle that God has a res had a rescue plan for me. Truly a miracle. So this is, the, this is God's pursuit team of me. Um, as I reflect back, God was pursuing me over 35 years ago. That's when I met my future wife, Alice. We went on a backpacking trip spontaneously. It's so out of my character to... A couple of guys say, hey, Peter, let's go to this backpack trip. And I'm being very frugal, and I would buy this very expensive sleeping bag. I would buy all this equipment on the spur of the moment, and we just went. <laughs> and um, so there was a group of uh, four ladies and their, you know, their girlfriends and four of the guys, and, and all eight of us would go to this um, place called Lake Saddleback. Uh, that's uh, east of Yosemite a little bit. And... In the arrangement of the eight people, we were just figuring out, like, okay, who's going to take who, who's going to bring the gear and all, and all that. And it so happened that Alice and I were driving in my car, and I had a hatchback, so the rest of the hatchback had all the gear. So the four-hour drive to Lake Saddleback just flew by. We just flew by. We just hit it off right away. Um, and... Um, same on the way back. So just fast forward five years later, by God's grace, Alice became a Christian. She met a couple of Christian women who befriended her and our first child. Invite, these women invited Alice to church. God used them to draw Alice to himself. And Alice would keep going to church every week, even though we had three little children, three little ones by then, faithfully bring three young children to church all by herself, week after week. Um, and my children love Awana, and Alice was a Cubbies teacher and helper for years. And, but during all this time, unbeknownst to me, um, she was regularly praying for my salvation. Meanwhile, I didn't go to church. I poured myself into my career and caring for the family. I still let, you know, work, live by my core values. Um, then uh, tragedy struck. Uh, my son had an accident and had to have surgery. And I remember that night I was staring out at the moon, wondering why did this happen? Why would God allow such a thing? Um, 
Alice's church was very supportive, and one of the deacons and his wife visited us, expressing love that I've never really experienced from strangers before. Um, that really moved me to want to know more about this church and belief that my wife and children were going to. I started to attend fellowship gatherings, uh, met some Christians, had enjoyed conversations, had some sweet fellowship, um, and I kind of liked what I was seeing. And after a number of visits, I met a pastor, and we talked about God and belief and religion and all that. And I enjoy the conversations because um, I enjoy philosophy. In fact, I got a philosophy book as a birthday present from, um, from my stepsister. So I enjoy all the various, because it was intellectual, it was like thinking all these possibilities and things like that. Um, and then in the fall of 1995, the pastor gave me this book and said, hey, why don't you check out Christianity too? And so he gave me this book to read, Mere Christianity. Don't judge a book by its title. Uh, it was not mere at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I did not know what I was getting into. So I borrowed a book from the library, uh, church library, and I wrestled with it a ton. So I decided to return the book and buy my own copy because I was taking too long. Um, and C.S. Lewis, the author, challenged my mind time and time again and it was really a long wrestling match. You think this book, you know, you could read it in maybe a few days or a week, but it took me months to go through this book. And that's because at each paragraph, practically, it dismantled my so-called worldview. Um, in the interest of time, I'll just tell you what things it knocked down as I went on with this book. Um, there was an objective standard for morality, so gone is postmodernism. Um, there was something called law of human nature that is separate from the natural laws like law of gravity. So gone is my scientific and engineering knowledge and formulas. All that's gone. Um, there's a morality. There's an aspect of morality that science doesn't answer. So that nails evolution. There's an objective standard for morality. Not what you think or what they think. And this is when the wrestling match became really intense. This is when I felt really uneasy about my convictions. Um, my worldview was being attacked and was crumbling. And, and um, C.S. Lewis, he's a kind of a sneaky writer because he would give it to you little chunks at a time. It's almost like eating an elephant, one bite at a time. And I came to realize that um, a good person is not good enough. Uh, I was far from perfect, and I've broken the moral law many times. So in biblical terms, I admitted I was a sinner. Um, then it goes through different religions, and it wrestle, I wrestled with it, helped me to eliminate some of the religions from consideration. Um, so that philosophy stuff went out the window. Um, and with this objective God that the Christians believe in, I had mulled that over many times, and that's when my firm belief in God came really crystallized. Um, and I saw the influences of my past weakening, 
And I became skeptical of the basis of my convictions. It really, because it wasn't relative anymore. Here is objective. Um, I had to be objective. And, and then um, Lewis introduces this person named Jesus who can forgive sins. What is that? Lewis argues a rather ridiculous claim that Jesus forgives sins made by other men against other men. That didn't make sense to me. And um, then when he argues, well, either he's a lunatic, or he's evil and a liar, or he is God. You can read through that. That was a wow moment for me. This, that was when I knew that Jesus is God. I'm skipping through a lot of details, but through this, I had to wrestle with so much of the past and getting rid of all that garbage. Um, then I counted the cost, because there's a big section on counting the cost, and I thought that was very helpful. And the one big takeaway is pride provokes other sins and makes it impossible to know God. I think Pastor Derek preached on that um, earlier this year. And I thought people who believed in God or the Bible were weak, either needing an emotional crutch to get through life, but how wrong I was. Christians do not need God to survive. They are living the victorious life because God is in their lives. Christians do not need God to survive. They, live, they are living the victorious life because God is in their lives. So there's just so much more I can share, but um, I just want to summarize some points that here I was at the crossroads. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that there's a God. I know Jesus is God. I know Jesus forgives sins. I counted the cost of agreeing to Christianity. My pride was making me impossible to know God. So this is where the pride breaks down. And the sermons and scripture point to the way of eternal life. Romans 10, verses 9 to 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So this was a really long three-month um, wrestling match I had with God of the Bible. I surrendered. All these religions were false, useless Buddhist trans, uh, traditions. They were a blend of human traditions, um, mysticism, superstition. All my education was rubbish. I made a leap of faith. Believe, agree, believe, and choose is sometimes put ABC, where I agree that with God that I am a sinner, need to turn from it to repent. I believe by faith that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for my sin, rose from the dead, and I choose to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Amazing Grace, what a beautiful uh, hymn. That decision of putting Christ in my life uh, as Lord and Savior, and this was December 1995. And I think statistically, being of an older age, um, I think I'm a, it's a lower percentage that someone that, at that age would be saved. So I'm just, just eternally grateful. Um, and with that, I, am live I became a new creation by the grace of God. I know that 
there's a God. He's powerful, holy, loving. I no longer look for the interests of myself, but to the others. Um, God has a purpose for me. Um, Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And shortly after my conversion, and kind of relating back to the passage, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, I I was baptized the following Easter, and I read God's Word with so much hunger, just incredible hunger. Um, I began to learn apologetics, began to be getting ready to make a defense. This was traditional apologetics, so sorry, Cliff. It wasn't biblical apologetics. Your book wasn't available then. Um, but um, being a Christian, you know, it just made me just think of just all the just nonsense that goes on with evolution and with many other things. Um, and I'll just share a couple of things there. Evolution attributes to chance to explain life being able to function. And if you have a complex system like a living system, like a person or animal, it takes many subsystems like the heart and the lungs to work all at the same time for it to live. And so to give it to chance that all this would occur simultaneously and, and perfectly, um, one, one um, person puts it best, Attributing this to chance is the greatest insult to God. And I take it as an insult to God. Why? Because it says that a creator was not necessary. That's what it's saying when you so-called attribute something to chance. Chance is just a term for a probability of something. It's a mathematical term. It's not a force. It's not, it doesn't have any creative power. So, so that's the greatest insult to God. Um, so I want to wrap up here with uh, three lessons that I've learned. There are many lessons I've learned. I want to wrap up with three. One, through the years, um, is get the whole story. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And I find that to be very true in some experiences that I've had um, in the past and and really very recently as well. Um, This involves being patient, not interrupting someone in the midst of their talk. Um, Hear the whole matter, get a thorough understanding. So I think this applies a lot to our conversation, but I think this also applies to studying God's Word, because often the case, you may so-called jump to a conclusion as you read something, study something, but you may need to search the scriptures more to get more of the whole point of what God's trying to say. So get the whole story. Number two is immeasurable riches of God's word. Um, I think God's word is so deep, so rich. um, I think it's good practice to don't assume that you know all there is to know about a passage even though you're very familiar with it, even though you studied it many times or heard many sermons and so forth, as you approach God's Word, um, whether in a study or listening to a sermon or going to a Bible study, come with an eager anticipation that God will teach you something that you don't know. Um, I've learned this over and time and time again. Um, a couple years ago, our Friday night Bible study, we studied the book of Job, 
and it's a very rich, poetic, deep book. We took 25 lessons to go through the book of Job. And there's so many nuggets in that great book. And especially when God speaks in chapters 38 to 42. And just to give you an idea of how deep it is, I'll share just one passage with you um, to get a more thorough understanding. So Job 38, 31, there's many lines that um, God says about his creation and challenges. Job, do you know this? So Job 38, 31 says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? In some translation says, Can you influence, have sweet influences of the Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion? At first glance, you may not think much of this verse. Uh, Pleiades and Orion are constellations in the sky. Um, when we see constellations, we see them in two dimensions. We don't know how deep they are, how far they are this, in this dimension. So it's kind of deceiving whether these stars are close together or not. Well, it turns out in the last century, astrophysicists discovered that Pleiades, which is the constellation, there's about 250 or so stars that are in this cluster. And this is one of very, very few constellations that are close enough to actually have gravitational forces influence each other. So God is telling, asking Job, can you actually bind these stars as they travel through the universe? That's how deep of a creator, how marvelous creator we have. So, and the other one, can you lose the bands of Orion? You may know the constellation of Orion by the three stars that form like a belt. Distance-wise, you don't know if they're close enough or not, but it turns out as, um, the astrophysicists have found that these three stars are actually moving away from each other. They're loosening. The belt is loosening. So at some point in time, this belt will no longer be a belt. So it's very deep. And, um, as, and this is just one of many verses, in, especially in chapters 38 and 39, that is unbelievable how deep it is. And how did the author of Job know this thousands of years ago? We just found this out um, by observation within the last century. And that's because the author is God, right? And my last point is, have a very high view of God. I think that's one of the things that really kind of got me too prideful in the beginning. And even as a believer, it's like, I don't have a high enough view of God. He is so much higher than us. And we are finite. He is infinite. But um, as we study the book of Job, one of the problems of his three friends is they did not leave room for God in their theology. They did not have a high enough view of God. And, and I, I was just blessed as I was, um, we're just finishing, we just finished up the book of Jude in the Friday night studies. And one of the doxologies has this phrase, now to him who is able. That only happens, um, I think, three times three doxologies, and each one of those three is a very encouraging passage. You know, especially if you're in a trial or you don't understand or something, that phrase, now to him who is able, God is able beyond our measure. In this case, in Jude, verse 24, is to keep you from stumbling. And he wants to present you 
faultless before the presence of his glory and with exceeding joy. That is so encouraging. And so as we study, as we grow, we really need to have a very high view of God, um, kind of beyond what we can imagine. Yeah, that, that's my testimony. And at this time, um, take questions from members. Any questions? Yes, Colin. My spiritual gifts. Um. <laughs> yeah, uh, the question is, what do I think are my spiritual gifts? Um, I'm. I think maybe teaching and helps is maybe administration. I do the minutes. I enjoy doing the minutes. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this is Pastor Cliff, Peter. Yeah. Good to meet you. Leadership, that's one of his gifts, Colin. That's a, a gift listed in Romans. Uh, question for you, Peter, in light of your four convictions growing up, mm-hmm. one of those was the commitment to the family, the blood yeah. connection. Mm-hmm. How do you look at that now once you become a Christian in light of a new commitment and loyalty, even the words of Jesus, that you've, you've got to love God and Christ more than you love your family. What have been the implications and challenges with that? Yeah, um, the challenge there, I think a big part is in family gatherings, um, not to compromise, um, to feel confident and even comfortable um, sharing your faith or even saying grace at meals and um, and just being able to to witness for Christ, um, however big or little, within the family context. Um, and I consider the church here as part of my family, and that's where um, I find it a joy to serve because I think that's you know just part of the spiritual family, um, also. Hey, uh, um, yeah. I had a question. So you, you mentioned that Alice got saved earlier yeah. and you got saved later. Could you maybe speak a little about what that dynamic was? Was she sharing the gospel with you? Like, how did, how did her faith impact you? And what was your relationship like, given that you were not believing at the time and she was? Yeah, um, I think she came to faith maybe, I want to say, seven years before I did, roughly. Um, at that time, we, we had, I think, two children, very young, and I think she took the girls to um, some kind of children co-op class type program, and, and that's where she met the, um, these Christian women. Um, that dynamic, uh, because she was a new Christian, um, she didn't really confront me with faith at that time because she's 
growing and learning herself. Um, um, I just think that in the background, she was praying for me, and um, and um, and I didn't know that um, she started to grow in her faith by serving in the Wana. At that church, we had a Wana every Wednesday night, and the kids would have their cubbies, uniforms, and so forth, and they were just very enthusiastic. And Al served as a helper and teacher, and and just was just very dedicated. And I think that's just part of that witness that really struck me. Um, the other part is just, it was amazing how happy they were. <laughs> and my kids and Alice, as they went there and as they went back, come back home. So um, for me, because my workload was high, I took it more as, um, at that time, kind of for granted, I was a relief that they're being fulfilled while I still continue to press toward um, you know, providing for the family. Um, so it, it wasn't until a number of years later, and um, I think 96, so I became a Christian in December 95, and at, at that church in the, on Thanksgiving dinner, there's an annual Thanksgiving dinner, and in 96, um, I was surprised. Alice was brave enough to take the mic, and they shared the blessings, and there was probably 150, 200 people, and she shared to the congregation and family and friends as to how she was praying for me and praising God that I came to faith um, the year prior. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like First Peter 3. <laughs> it was uh, just uh, that continual going and so forth. Um, Uh, speaking of uh, apologetics, um, do you have any recommended authors besides, I mean, C.S. Lewis and Cliff McManus? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think that um, it's such a broad topic, I would say, and it's, un, it's a kind of a necessary homework, but you almost need to read some things of debunking theories to get an idea of where they're coming from. But that's more on the secondary. I think the primary, um, just still just digging through the Bible and, and, and so forth is, is so much already. It, it's a matter of the, I think the fine details of certain biblical books that you need to really have a good grasp on, like First John, to really kind of articulate the what I call the gray areas within what, well, these people will point out, well, they used to believe and they don't believe and what happened and so forth. It's, uh, it's hard because um, on this side of heaven, we don't know who are saved or who, who is saved, so-called saved, and then they fell away where they, they were never saved. And so not giving you a good answer, but um, they're just... There's just a lot to learn within the different aspects. And I was sharing about you know, knowing the whole story, so to speak, is trying to really understand because ultimately um, is to try to snatch them out of the fire, right? Yeah. 
three more minutes. Good. Okay. Well, if you have any more questions, you can feel free to, um, I'll be in the lobby area. Um, and um, appreciate you coming. Let me close in a word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. It's um, amazing, so amazing how you could save a wretch like me and many others. Um, I thank you that through different means um, that you can do that. And this is with obstacles that are, seems like um, so big, so hard to overcome, but yet uh, you can do the miracle. And God, we thank you. Uh, I thank you that you've done a miracle in me and, and my wife, Alice, and, um, and uh, may you get all the glory, Lord. Um, and as we leave, um, may you prepare our hearts to, um, to receive the, the message and, and you get the, 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 um, the worship that you deserve. Um, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.